So I'm going to start with a question I ask everyone right off the bat because it's something that interests me a lot. Why get into the field of sports in general, but specifically football, knowing how male-dominated it is? Well, you know, I think for so many things, what's really important is that we're following passion, right? And, And when you love things, you don't really think, oh, well, there's more guys than girls when I'm getting into it. It's like, no. I really want to do this because I love it. I care about it. And frankly, for women, you know, they call it the final frontier for women in sports. And so it's one of those things that we can then say, okay, well, when I can win here and do well here, there's nothing I can't do. And to me, that's really fascinating and really exciting. I like that. I don't often think about football as being the final frontier, especially given that's like where I want to work, but I'm like, Oh, that sounds a lot more impressive than. Right. But that's what they call it. Right. It's the only sport that doesn't have parity at any level from peewees to the pros. Right. Wow. We're just talking now. Yeah. We're just talking now that the NAIA is going to have its first girls varsity flag football season in 2021. And being in the States, right? This is American football. Yeah. Why is it American football, right? America's game. And yet it's one that we're only game for half of the society to play. That's wow. I never thought that's true. Cause it has like taken over baseball as America's game and even baseball. Like you have girls playing. That was America's pastime. (laughs) Apparently America's game. Big difference. Good to know. Right. Um, Like those things to me stand out. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's true. Cause I remember having to answer people when they're like, Oh, like, how did you get into football? Like you can't, girls don't play football. And right. I was just like, I don't think any other sport has to deal with that except maybe they like sumo do. wrestling. Right. Like they might to some extent, Yeah, but it's not so, and it's not such a cultural fixture yeah. that it's, you know, so controversial to do it. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, Football took over Thanksgiving. Football has taken over Sundays. Yeah, um, yeah. And yet we have even old American ideals that would say like, you know, the men are watching football and the women are cooking, right? Like things like that to me, I think I think I don't cook to this day because I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to watch football instead, right? Like I, yeah. Like there are so many elements that go into that it just never synced up to me. Like why, why wouldn't we do that differently? Or why couldn't we look at that sport as a place that we could shift culture through sports? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So with all that being said, how did you start in football? Like when did you realize that that's where your passion was? Well, I wanted to play when I was young. Mm -hmm. Tyson's going to take over. That's what he likes to do when I'm on a Zoom call. It should be about him. Easy, baby. Say hi. Ah, hello. Can you say hello? My my girls, the grand girls say that he is the real MVP. So um, I agree. You know, I I just try to be a strong second. (laughs) 
being the number one. So strong supporting role. Yeah, I'm a, I'm the supporting cast. He is he is the actual hero. Yeah. Um. So I started playing football when I was 22 years old. Um, wanted to play when I was younger, but it wasn't a sport that girls played. And so uh, played rugby in college because it was the closest that I could get to football. Absolutely. And then when I finally had the opportunity to play, it was like, oh yeah, this is, this is what I'm meant to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's really interesting also because a lot of the times when you speak to athletes in particular about their sport, they're always like, oh, I started when I was two, I started when I was four and you've made an an entire career on something that you started at 22, I think is really not only impressive, but it also kind of shows that you're never too old to start something new. Oh no, Tyson's causing pain. He's good. He just likes to be, you know, in the mix. Maybe he just wants to make sure he can see what's going down. If you have an opinion, Tyson, let me know. Please do. I mean, he does. (laughs) Like you can tell he has opinions in that strong head of his. Oh, yeah. He's the best assistant coach ever. <laughs> I can have, I would listen to him. I would run whatever route he told me to. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Um, so when did you know that you would be playing football at the level of which you were playing at, like the, the highest of the high levels in women's football? You know, I, I don't know that it was like um, even something you could think about early. Um, and yet for me, it was like, It was just a commitment to being the best for my team, for my teammates to challenge myself at each level. Right. And when I started, you know, there wasn't a goal to represent the U S right. That didn't exist yet. And so it was about, okay, well, I play for the Dallas diamonds and I want the Dallas diamonds to be, um, the best team that there is. And I want to be, you know, a starter on that team. And we were, all really committed i think um when you've played on a dynasty team you learn certain things that other people may not understand and Mm. we did we had a dynasty we're one of the very best teams in women's football for a long time and you know and i say that people are like oh what do you mean i'm like well we won four super bowls in five years if that's not a dynasty, I don't know what is, yeah. but it was so special because we moved differently, right? Mm-hmm. We had a culture of success that was set up that anybody who came to be a part of that team was brought into. Yeah. And that culture was determined by the players, right? Like we set the standard. Other coaches weren't having to do that. We we did that. We're like, this is what you do. This is how we move. Here are the extra workouts that we do that you're welcome to join. And basically Mm. like, you're going to want to join. Otherwise, (laughs) you know, you're going to be a step behind. And it was such a, a cool thing to be a part of a standard of excellence Mm. that we all pushed ourselves and we wanted to be good and we wanted to, you know, beat each other on one tens and we wanted to, you know, um, just go in and dominate teams. So, you know, it was part of being a part of that culture and being one of the leaders on that team that that's your goal, right? Like, and, and it is to move that way. And then, you know, um, in two, 
Ty. Hello. Oh my goodness. And then in 2009, they made the announcement that they were going to have a U.S. national team for the first time. And I know for me, it was like, oh, I got to play. Yeah. Right. And, and that was then this, you know, the goal that was not only do I want to be one of the best Dallas Diamonds, but I want to be um, one of the best in the United States and to go represent in the world. So I think it's always focusing on doing work in the immediate, um, which then is cumulative, um, especially in that sport, because, and I say it that way because we were leading from the front. It's not like the U S national team was always a goal. And I was looking at it from afar. It was like the possibility for that to be a goal came about when we were playing. So, yeah. you know, you just, you keep stepping up to the next level of excellence as it becomes available. Wow. That's incredible. I also think that's like really interesting just the way you speak of that. Cause I think a big fascination in sport and especially in sport media is how do those elite teams work? Like people stare at the Patriots dynasty and it's like, how did that happen? So you were on the inside of a dynasty and knowing that it's a lot of the times player led, I don't think it's going to be surprising to people, but that's, that's really cool to know. Um, yeah. And it's a culture, right. That permeates everything that we do. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's why I have people all the time who say, you know, oh gosh, we've been so bad for so long. And I go, yeah, but a lot of that is, did you ever have the consistency in your leadership, in your commitment to greatness, to be able to not only get the players in, but to create an, a culture, yeah. right? If it, if a head coach is coming in, and he's three years and out, you know, that guy's still trying to create a culture. He's still trying to get the right players in for that system. Um, there are a lot of different elements where, you know, if you talk about the New England Patriots, you know, a lot of people before they even walk in the door, they know what the Patriot way is. Yeah. Right. And it may or may not be a fit. Don't get me wrong. Like there are some people who are not kind of the Patriot way. Right. But the Patriots have a very um, systematic way of, for example, um, a, assigning value to players, which has allowed them to and very clear on what they want in players, which is why they've done so well in late rounds of drafts. For example, they know who they are and they know who they need to get. So it's not so hard for them. And a lot of those moves don't have to be big and flashy and they actually don't have to hit on anybody else's standard, but their own. For and sure. that's a lot of what makes it so special. Yeah. I know definitely being a Patriots fan. Um, well, a, this year has been painful. Um, yeah. B a lot of the times it's, we sit there or even like fans of other teams are like, you guys don't make the big signing. And it's like, well, we don't, they haven't needed to, they can take a guy, you slot him in. And if it works, it works. And if not, he's cut three days later. Um, a la Jonas Gray, who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and then was no longer employed, I believe two weeks after that. Ooh, um, that's tough. It was, yeah, it was had a breakout game. And then I was like, where'd he go? He was late for practice one day and that's where he went. Um, anyways, um, so how did your relationship with football change or evolve or kind of 
what was that like while you were in university? Because I mean, obviously you're a doctor, you have your PhD, um, which I think is incredible, obviously. Um, so how did that all work with football? Um, it had to work around football um, because that was, that was the mission I was on in my life, right? And getting my master's and getting my PhD were my way of creating um, a place and a space for myself within sports, right? So here I am getting this great practical experience being, you know, playing on these great teams and, and being a professional athlete. And yet there was no place for women in football at that time. So what I thought is I could take this unique experience, right? As um, a woman playing football and put it with the theoretical knowledge of getting a master's in sports psychology and a PhD in psychology and become a unique value proposition to the sport, right? A combination of theory and practice to be able to be something of value. And so, you know, my life was work by day, play football by night and go to school by very late night because that's what I wanted to commit that's what I was committed to creating in my life. Yeah. And, you know, even, you know, even the dissertation that I wrote was on the NFL's use of the Wonderlick and player selection and just really making sure that the work I was doing in school um, was going to fit with what I wanted to do in my life um, as well as possible. And so that was always looking for ties between the subject matter and where I wanted to develop my expertise. Absolutely. Um, do you think that just because you were speaking about trying to create value for yourself in football, um, do you think that that was inherent to you being a woman? Or do you think that that's kind of the mindset of everyone that goes into football? Or like, do, do you think you had to work a little bit harder to prove that you had a place there? Like right off the no, bat? No, I think I had to create a space. Okay. There was no place. So I had to create a space where I could add value in that sport um, because there weren't women in coaching. There weren't women in scouting. That wasn't actually my goal, but I knew I had a great understanding as a player. And so why not combine theory and practice to be somebody who was unique in the sport? I didn't see anybody who had that. And yet I knew it could be a value. So I created it, right? I always tell people a unique value proposition means find a place and create a space where there's not someone else like you, because then you'll always, you'll always have value and you'll always, um, you know, have a voice in that community. Right. For me to have been a doctor and to have been a player, that's unique and special. And the people who get it are going to want me because there weren't there weren't other people like me. Yeah. So that has nothing to do with a woman. It just has everything to do with, you know, looking at the market or looking at a sport or looking at sports media or looking at wherever you are in this world and saying, you know, here are some things that I can put together that are different in the puzzle of what they are right now that other people aren't necessarily doing. And in that there will be value. 
and believing that I could create value in doing those things and in learning different aspects of, you know, in the game, um, whether it was learning how to write a scouting report or, you know, to do some of those other things or to look at tests that they used in football and become an expertise in that, like an expert in that, then, you know, when you're an expert, people, people will seek you out as opposed to you being somebody who's, you know, essentially the same as everybody else. Yeah. I think that's a really, like, I've never thought to look at it that way. Um, and I have spent a lot of time thinking, I'm like, how am I a woman from Canada going to get into the NFL? Um, but I think, so that's like really valuable advice. Um, how it, so it's not a woman from Canada. It's where is my value? And my value may not be at, at the outset. It may not be a woman from Canada getting into the NFL. Maybe it's bringing the, the perspective of the NFL to women in Canada. Right. And then I become an expert on football and breaking it down to a fan base that I know that the NFL, you know, wants to attract. And there is, by the way, NFL Canada. So is there then a place and a space to be that expert in Canada for the NFL? Yeah. Right. Does that allow you to build bridges there and then extend your career? Right. Sometimes, um, where we can ease most easily create value and expertise is not going onto somebody else's turf, right? But it's creating turf of our own um, and following an expertise that, you know, people look to that then you can say, oh, okay, this is, this is where the opportunity lies. Right. Cause if you go, if you go into the U S is it an advantage that you're from Canada or is it, is it a disadvantage, right? Like, yeah. am I trying to fight with all of these Americans that say American things and do those things, or can I create my expertise here and then grow from where I'm strongest? For sure. Excuse me, as I will be writing all of this down after this podcast, when I listen to it again, um, so can you just dive into your experience a little bit more about winning gold medals in women's football? Because I think that's an experience that is definitely not covered by the media and a lot of people probably don't even know is a thing. Yeah, it's definitely not. Um, so the very first women's world championship was in 2010 in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, I was one of the 45 women who represented the United States we played three games in a week. I just want y'all to know. So when these wow. guys talk about a Thursday game or, you know, a short week. Uh, no, no, no. Kind of <laughs> right. And it's yeah. a roster of 45, by the way. So very tight rosters. But, um, you know, one of the absolute best experiences of my life. Um, we ended up over three games winning 201 to zero. Wow. As someone who has been on the other end of some very bad losses, that hurt my heart. I don't know who you were playing against, but I hope they're okay. Well, one was Team Canada, so <laughs> they, 
they have a love-hate relationship with me for sure in Canada. Um, but we played them. Uh, they ended up with two silver medals in the, okay. in the that I was there. Um, so obviously one of the leaders in in women's football. I believe they actually have golden flag too. I don't play in the flag one, but. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, a, a wonderful rivalry, which, you know, was love and um, and sweet revenge, I'm sure, at, you know, at, at some points. But um, 201 to zero in the first one. Let's see, who did we play first? We played Austria in the first round, um, Finland in the second round, and then Canada in the third. Um, the second time that we went, we played... We played, I want to say Sweden, Germany, and yep, Sweden, Germany, and then Canada in in the third as well. Wow. So um, 2010 and 2013, um, we won gold medals in both. I remember playing against um, Team Sweden too, and they were really young and they were so excited to play the Americans. I'll never forget. <laughs> And, you know, we're beating them really pretty badly. And yeah. our, our head coach actually offered them, you know, like a running clock so that the score wouldn't be as high. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget having so much respect for their coach because he said, no, um, we don't want that. We want every minute um, that we can have playing against the best team in the world. Wow. Right. It wasn't about the score. It wasn't about that. But he really believed that that experience could increase the level of play uh, throughout Sweden because they got to see what it took to be the very best. Yeah. And that to me was like, you know, if we if we had more leaders like that, who really looked to like, no, I want to, I want to play the best because I want to learn from the best. And it's not, it's not a negative on us to not be there yet. Yeah. Um, and I remember I took that same kind of um, stance when I was the head coach of the Australian women's national team, you know, we knew we were younger. The players there had only been playing for three or four years and they had a passion for football, but the coaches were really scratching and fighting to teach themselves off YouTube. And, wow. you know, I told everybody that I didn't want, you know, I didn't want my team to, to ever be shorted a minute. Like we wanted every chance that we could get, to get better and mm -hmm. for them to get the experiences of seeing that, yes, they were the best players in their country. Um, but for their country to be competitive, they had to get on the world stage level. And, yeah. um, you know, I think those things are really important because, you know, I was never disappointed in them for, you know, Oh, not winning or something like that. Like the only thing that to me, um, inhibits you from, from learning in those situations is if you give up, right? Yeah. Those are, those are the only moments that are disappointing to me as a, as a coach or a competitor is if we gave up on ourselves, but if we gave everything that we had and we just weren't yet at that level, that's not disappointing. That's learning. And that's yeah. hopefully going to push you in your own programs to, to take your game to the next level. For sure. That's so cool, though, to know that you played those like more Nordic countries, because 
honestly, those would have been last on my list of who I thought were playing tackle football, let alone playing women's tackle football. I think that is incredible. And now I want to watch all of the World Cups. So thank you for giving me a new um, <laughs> entertainment for sure. option. For um, sure. But Canada has done a really good job of you know, they have some really passionate groups for, you know, both flag and tackle in Canada. And I think, yeah. um, I think that's really exciting to me. Um, yeah. I know, I know I, I chop it up with them all the time. Um, and I actually had a moment, oh my gosh, you'll appreciate this. Where, <laughs> um, one of my friends who coaches in the CFL met the, uh, head coach of team Canada and, uh, you know, he was like, oh, you, you know, you coach for them. Like, so you must know Jen Welter. And he said, oh, yes. He was like, we do. She is, she is very knowledgeable and I think very difficult or something too. Like it was, you know, there was something along those lines. And he was like, yeah, that's Jen. Right? Like, like then, you know, she knows her stuff. But I remember I actually had to like, you know, to push for rules, mm -hmm. right? And, and I was the first female to be the head coach of, of a national team yeah. in American football. So I can assure you that they did not know what to do with me. And some of those stances that I had to take were really tough on me even personally because I knew some of the people, but you still have to look out for your team and do the best thing for for your team. And I just remember being in this room with all of these guys and going, okay. Right. Like there's no one else who can, who can say it for me or do it for me. Like I am that woman and I have to be that woman um, yeah. because I want to set that standard that a woman could be the head coach. Right. And that I will say the, say the things that need to be said. And I am, well-informed and I am well-spoken and I'm not a pushover. And I remember my friend laughed so hard. He was like, yeah, so that's what he said. And I was like, I was like, so they may, may or may not like me in Canada. He's like, well, I like you in Canada. We can't, we can't speak for all of Canada, but I like you. And he did respect you. And I was like, well, at least he respected me. I was like, and his team did beat the brakes off of team Australia. So <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I also don't speak for all of Canada, but um, I like you. My house likes right. you. So honestly, no, you've been my idol for a considerable number of years. So when my dad heard that you were my professor, he was like, I think he was more excited than I was because obviously like he's my football buddy. I got into football um, because I wanted attention from him because he worked really long weeks. He'd be off on Sundays and instead of playing with me, he'd be watching football. So I was like, well, I'll learn football. Um, football, right. Yeah. So he was really excited to find that out. And obviously wanting to work in football, being able to have a woman to look up to is, I like, I can't tell you what it it's done for, for me and like me going after what I want. So thank you for that. It's a You're total side. Um, but yeah, I used to coach against um, someone who I think either coached or played for Team Canada, women's tackle football. Um, and it was just like, wow, this is, and I honestly thought it was like only Canada and the States playing. I couldn't think of anyone else playing. So it's so cool that it, has gone literally all the way around the world from being it is and state. you know australia plays there's a lot of good competition mexico plays panama plays like wow uh, particularly like 
and, and, and a lot, of, and for a lot of the countries, um, it's kind of, it's funny, like the Nordic countries, you hear a lot more about, um, tackle, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of the warmer countries, you hear a lot more about flag, but flag is such an interesting growth sport for me because it doesn't have the inherent challenges of the financial burden of yeah. all of that football equipment, right? Yeah, because football equipment is expensive. And part of why, you know, soccer can be such a global sport is because you need a ball. Yeah. It, right. And, and the beauty of flag football is you really need a ball Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. And so I think that you're going to see, um, and it's an important element, obviously in tackle playing flag and being able to learn the schemes and do a lot of that stuff without the contact, but also, um, just the financial viability of it is pretty powerful. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, I played flag, um, cause that's what was accessible to me. So obviously I have a, a big love for that one, but I did play in a flag league that was, the off-season league for a bunch of boys that were playing AAA football and the no contact was a suggestion more than a rule at times. And I was absolutely fine with it. But my mom, who I think my concussion count was at like four at that point was less. Um, But again, that's an aside. Um, So when did you realize that, um, or when did you start thinking about moving over to the men's side of the game? Um, it wasn't something I, I set out to do. Actually, if you would have asked people earlier in my career, like I was outspoken that I would never play football against men. Yeah. I mean, I'm five foot two, 130 pounds. (laughs) I'm not crazy. So, um, what happens though, is sometimes in our development, we get put into situations where you either step up or don't. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to step up. And that's really what it was. Like they came to me, they wanted me to go through a day of training camp with their guys. And I basically was like, yeah, that's an insult as somebody who just won my second gold medal. And, you know, you want me to just, you know, like go out and maybe run some routes or do some ladder drills. Like I'm not doing it. Um, If you want to do anything with me and your football team, I either do everything they do step for step, hit for hit for all of training camp, or I do nothing at all. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, it was like, oh, wow, I might've just gotten myself killed. Um, And yet I would not change. I wouldn't change it if I could. Um, because it made me a better person and it taught me so much about those guys. And I really learned them. Um, and they learned me and we came out of an insane situation, like with insanely cool stories and as really firm allies. And, you know, I know I never would have gotten the opportunity to coach if I hadn't played with those guys because it was the respect that I earned from playing with them that actually caught the attention of Wendell Davis, who was the head coach the following season. And he, after grilling me on football, was basically like, you have to coach my football team. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. I said, no, 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 girls don't coach football. I'm not going to do that. And he said, not a lot of guys are going to give you this opportunity or taking this job. And so I said, no, I hung up on him and he actually took the job on my behalf and then told me about myself later. (laughs) So 
thankfully Wendell saw something in me before I even saw it in myself um, and wouldn't take no for an answer. But it really did push me to be a better version of myself. And that is something that I am so thankful of because he really wouldn't let me not be that person. And so, so yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't something I set out to do because there were no women doing it, but I am, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't undo it and go back and do it any other way if I could. Yeah. How do you feel now knowing that like you almost didn't do it and now knowing that there are women who go into this sport and go into this field because of you and because you give them confidence that they can do it? Um, you know, it, it just really, it really speaks to how important representation is, not just in football, but in all areas of society, right? Part of the reason why I didn't see it is because, or didn't do it is because I couldn't look and see someone else who looked like me. Yeah. Right. There was nobody I could look at and say, I want to, I want to be her. I want to do what she's doing. Um, and so to now be able to be that person who just gives the, the spark of hope to other people, that's really cool. Um, because what it's going to do is it's going to mean that there will continue to be more and more girls who do more and more great things in the sport of football and that we can fortify each other. And whether it's the, you know, the game of football, the game of life, or, you know, a, a business or the business of sports, we need representation because that does matter. It does matter to see yourself in those positions because it does, you know, give that hope to somebody who can dream earlier and then set the intention around it, right? Like, not only do I want to do this or I think it's possible, but now I'm going to start doing the things earlier that will allow me to be better and better. Mic drop on that one. I don't really have a follow-up. Um, so going back to, to when you were playing, and I think this is a question um, that like I've been thinking of a lot ever since Sarah Fuller played with Vanderbilt. What was the locker room situation like? Because she said in a press conference that she had to go to a different building to go pee. Um, so what was that? Common. Like? I mean, that's common. You know, I dressed with the dance team when I was on the Texas Revolution um, with the Arizona Cardinals. Um, I had a, um, it was like a, one of the refs locker rooms that they had. So it was just a private little like place to change. Now, most of the time I was just so used to like in women's football, we didn't have all that. So like yeah. we would kind of go half dressed anyway to the game. So <laughs> I just, I was always kind of like hedging my bets. Um, arena football, it was the toughest because we were doing something like you know, and there's not a ton of resources anyway, right? Like I remember there was one, um, stadium. It was the funniest. It was like, um, it was, a uh, like a rodeo stadium, you know, cause indoor football is like, um, it's a hockey arena essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, there were like the clown mirrors on the wall <laughs> and like you had to, it was all very, um, almost like if you think of like train cars, like you have to yeah. go through one to get to the other. It wasn't wow. like you could just go in a hallway and skip things. So it was kind of like, it was really awkward because it was like, oh, you have like all of these like changing mirrors and like, I don't want to go through there. Oh right? my or gosh. Like, oh my gosh, what am I going to see, right? <laughs> and so I used to just 
actually tap the guys and employ them. And I'd be like, uh, guys, am I clear? And they might be like, nope. And I'm like, okay. And I had, you know, I, there were times when I'd have guys like walk me through the <laughs> locker room and just cover my eyes. Because what I said is like, it's not like, it's not like you can't handle that stuff and you're not grown, but I didn't want to make it uncomfortable for anyone else either. Yeah, really, for sure. Because it's like, oh gosh, like, you know, if I'd have seen something I want to, and what if the guys never gave me eye contact again? Right. Like I never had yeah. anybody who did things that were hazing or, you know, those things like they dropped their towels and this, like they were so respectful. It was never anything like that, but it was like some of these buildings that you're in, you're just like, Oh gosh, I can't get to the coach's locker room without going through the guy's locker room. All right. Somebody help me out. And like, we used to, you know, we used to just have a really good understanding about it. And there were definitely times when guys would like, you know, walk me through. I mean, there was also in the same one where it was the, like the rodeo one, um, the showers were not where the players needed to change. So they kind of had to go like down the hallway. Right. And I remember seeing one of the, like, you know, two of the shorter guys with kind of like towels around them that just looked like too small. And I was standing next to one of our big linemen oh, and I, and his nickname <laughs> worm. And I was like, worm, please tell me that you're not going to try that. Cause right. Like, <laughs> you got too long legs, right? Like this would look like a loincloth on you. And he goes, he just looked at me and he goes, it's called shorts coach. And I said, <laughs> thank you. Right. So, you know, we would laugh and have those moments. And I think just being open to the conversation and realizing that everything, you know, there, there were going to be weird moments, but we just had to be good teammates. Um, actually made us move in a way that caught people's attention. Cause they were like, Oh, they really listen to you. They really like you. They respect you. And I, I, it would just kind of be like, but why wouldn't they? Right. Like it, it's not me versus them. Like I'm here for them. Right. I'm here to help them, to coach them, to push them, to groom them. And I'm not their enemy. So if it's, if it's something like an awkward situation with like, um, a bad locker room setup, we can figure that out. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, if, if it's you covering my eyes and walking me through, just don't walk me into a wall. I would really appreciate <laughs> that. Right. Like these things don't have to be really hard. And I think when you kind of get past them together, they can actually be really pretty seamless and, and pretty, pretty cool. I think they're not walking you into a wall thing. I think that's a fair request in, in fair my personal request. opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, tends to help. Um, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your eyes, buddy. <laughs> Hope they work. Um, right. So how did you let go from that, the rodeo arena football situation to Arizona? So a really cool thing about the world and how it works is like when you know, you have a breakout moment in one thing, it can trigger breakouts in others. And when Sarah Thomas was hired as the first full-time female ref in the NFL history, someone asked Bruce Arians, a reporter actually, asked Bruce Arians if he could ever see a female coaching in the NFL. And BA's answer was simple. The second a woman proves that she can make these guys better, she'll be hired. So talking to my head coach, he said, you know, I'd love to talk to Bruce for you. Can you get me his number? And, you know, I kind of was like, don't you, don't you guys like, 
have a little black book like is <laughs> you like um but I ended up calling the Cardinals and saying that my head coach from the Texas Revolution wanted to talk to the head coach of the Cardinals because he had heard his comment about a woman um being able to coach in the NFL and you know my coach wanted to talk to their coach and I apparently was really convincing because I left the message. And then a couple of weeks later, um, Bruce Arians called back my head coach and said, you know, tell me about this girl. Wow. That's mm-hmm. incredible. Um, so yeah. what was like the reception, like the first day you walked into the building, did they kind of announce that they hired you before you got there where you announced kind of upon arrival? Um, well, first of all, I mean, the players knew, um, long before the world knew, which is really important. It wasn't thrust upon them and just deal with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bruce Arians actually asked the leaders of, of his locker room, um, for their opinion and their buy-in. And it was, it was their decision. And I think that's why we were so successful because they got to make the decision that they wanted to be a part of history and that they wanted me to be there. So they were fully vested, fully bought in, and actually really proud to be a part of history and changing the National Football League. Um, you know, and then, I mean, me going to Arizona was actually, you know, announced in a press conference, but the guys knew long before that. Okay. That, I, I would imagine that that makes it better, kind of like that they expect it. You, did you, do you feel like you had to fight kind of a little bit harder to get the respect or like if they had bought in before you got there? You know, I don't. I don't think you fight for respect. First of all, I I think if you're looking for a fight, that's always, you're always going to find one. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to realize that I was there to help them. And so a good leader is a good listener. And, you know, people would always ask me like, Oh, how did you command their respect? And I would just kind of laugh. I'm like, Ooh, command. Ooh, (laughs) that, that already sounds bad, right? Like you have to listen to me because I'm your coach. No way. They don't, they don't have to listen to me. Them trusting me to listen to me is a gift. And it's one that I hold, you know, very close to the heart. And I think it's, it's very valuable. Right. And so they gave me that gift. And so for me, it was like, I, I want to help them. And so I would tell them like, my whole job is to make you better. Um, whether it's in football or life, that's what I'm going to do. And so I would look for ways that I could add value. Hey, next time try this, right. Or they beat you on this or your angle on this, or, you know, your hand placement, maybe a little bit on this. And it was one-on-one. I wasn't calling them out like, Hey, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, Hey, next time try this. And when it worked, they wanted more. And the truth is that I had not only football IQ, but, you know, I had a master's in sports psychology and a PhD in psychology. So there were a lot of different ways that I could help the guy, the guys um, that might not be quote unquote standard or what they were used to, which meant you have a different voice in the room. Now, does it mean it's, does it mean it's better or worse? No but are we better with more voices? Yes. And might what I have had to say um, to one of those guys be absorbed differently and be of value um, because I said it in a different way. Yeah. 
And so I think that that's part of what was really special. And thankfully, I also had um, a guy named Daryl Drake, who was a receivers coach. Um, and Drake had a real belief of like the importance of psychology in um, in working with players. And he was, you know, he was a receivers coach. So he didn't ever have to talk to me ever if he didn't want to, right? Like I'm on defense. <laughs> and yet, you know, he really took the time on my first day to say, this is something that's different that you have that other coaches don't have. It is very, very valuable. Um, and lean into it, right? Don't, don't dismiss it. Don't, don't, um, you know, don't try and fight their fight or, you know, um, they, he's like, there are guys who are going to know more X's and O's than you. Cause we're old, right? Is that what he said, he's like, cause we're old, you know? Um, and he said, and so don't feel bad about that. Learn from that. Right. But realize that what you have that none of the rest of us have is a PhD in psychology and lean into that and know how valuable that is. And so he really encouraged me to realize that, yes, I was different and that that wasn't bad. It was actually good. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite game or favorite memory from your time in the NFL that sticks out? So many. Um you know, the, the whole time is almost like a dream, right? But I, I would be remiss right now, especially with Sarah Thomas um, going to be the first female ref. Um, I saw that and I threw my phone. I was so excited when they named her to it. Oh my gosh. Me too. Every and time I see her blonde ponytail in the field, I'm like, yes, go Sarah. Well, and the fact that she she let me know before it was news. Okay. Um you know, she's like, Jen, you needed to hear it from me um, because we think of our lives as being intertwined. There are so many things, right? Like even that initial question um, was a part of my story. So we lovingly say we are like, you know, we are sisters from another mister entwined for all of time mm -hmm. because of what we've gone through. And so she made sure that I knew and you know, that first handshake with her, I think is so important because it represents a promise that this was the beginning and that there were only going to be more handshakes and more coaches and more refs um, to, to be able to do that. But that was the first time in the history of the National Football League that the handshake between a referee and a coach was between two women. And all I can think of is that that's, that that's a promise that though it's been that way in the past, it will not be that way in the future. Yeah. Wow. That gave me goosebumps um, and leads perfectly into my next question. Um, so how did you feel seeing um, the, the football game that happened this year that made history with um, a female coach on each sideline and the female official in the middle, Callie Bronstead and Jennifer King, I believe for the two yeah. coaches. Yeah. Well, I think it's great because I have relationships with all three of those women. And that's what makes it special. It's not just that it's that it's three women, it's three women that I know and I know how how qualified they are and how wonderful they are and how hard they've been working in their own ways, in their own journeys, in their own spaces to get those opportunities. And you know, and it's fantastic, right? Like that's what it is. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Um, so kind of pivoting a little bit. Obviously, your 
from the other side of the the media podium that I'm from and that a lot of the people that we've had on this podcast are from. Um, but from your seat at the table, have you noticed a shift at all in kind of the culture of women in sport media? Well, yeah, that it's not an exception anymore. Um, you know, I think we are getting more and more women in sports media who um, are getting more elevated roles, right? At one point it was the, the role for women in sports media was simply a sideline reporter. Now, not that that's easy, right? But that's the only place that you saw a woman. Yeah. Right. And now what we're seeing is not just just that role, but that the other roles are beginning to open up and that there are women who are, you know, who are so qualified and they have such wonderful opinions and they bring them to the forefront of conversation. Right. Like I love seeing Jessica Mendoza. I love seeing Kendall Coyne. I love seeing um, Joy Taylor. Right. Like going toe to toe with those guys. I love seeing MJ Acosta um, and her beautiful, brilliant self doing uh, bilingual NFL stuff, right? And she is not only a fantastic host, but she also brings that, um, you know, as she's not only a fantastic female host, but she brings a Latina perspective to it and she opens up about translating. And I think these are all the developments that we need in, in the fabric of the conversation going on around sport. And you see fantastic women, especially in basketball. I think basketball has done a really good job um, opening up not only the coaching ranks, front office ranks, but also the conversation ranks and analysts to, you know, to brilliant women like, you know, like your Nancy Lieberman's. Um, so I think it's only going to continue to grow. For sure. Yeah, I think it's like a pretty solid consensus that the NBA has been kind of at the forefront of all this. Um, obviously, the MLB is catching up with the hiring of Kim Ng. Um, I'm now a Marlins fan, even though I don't know anything about baseball. Um, so Moving on kind of in your career, um, we're getting towards the end here, I promise. Um, but what made you want to teach at Ryerson? So there's a group of us that are lucky enough to have you as a professor. So what made you kind of want to do that little pivot? Um, well, I'm going to fully give credit to Laurel and the Experiential Sports Lab. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to do a panel at Ryerson with great women like Anka Jess and, um, and Brittany Donaldson, and it was hosted and that was the the time when I got to, you know, really work with Laurel. I had already heard her vision, but like then to get experience with the students and see how passionate you were and to hear about the vision of the lab and that commitment to be the leaders in equity and sports media to me is, is just so fantastic and so needed. And the enthusiasm um, that everybody who was at that event had about the conversations that we were, we were having and they wanted, you know, y'all wanted to have, you know, podcasts and extend these conversations. And we're really listening with the, um, not just be there for the information, but to take it and look at how we could change conversations going forward. And to me, that's the opportunity of like this class that we're doing um, where it's, you know, we get to have these conversations and push them to the way that 
this is going to inform how you think and what your voice looks like going forward, right? Because if we think of, you know, one voice being powerful, right? If you say one voice, you know, Jen, you've been leading this and having these conversations for a long time, that's great, right? But think about the exponential impact that we could have when it's, you know, now we have 30 voices in that class who are pushing and finding ways that we are empowered to own that voice, own the conversations and really look at where we can impact the landscape. Now we're starting to create, you know, kind of a chorus for change or an army for change. And, um, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm really excited about the energy that that provides, right? Like if we can, if we can take, this course and really solidify people's voices and, you know, the conversations that we want to be amplified. Think about how powerful that becomes um, on an exponential scale. And hopefully, you know, each one of you then furthers the conversation, gets more people involved, gets people to think differently, use their, use their voices differently, use, you know, your podcast differently, use your, um, class time differently, your classmates, you know, using your projects, not just to be projects that somebody stuffs in a door or in a drawer or, you know, an electronic drawer, I guess you would say, but like, you know, but to find resonance and voice in the world, right? That's why I told you, I don't want you guys to have any, any assignments that aren't for exterior consumption. That's important, right? Like, if all of the things that I challenge to you to do in this class are things that you feel good enough to put out in the world, right? Then you're going to work harder on it. I don't want to just give you work to have work. I want you to be able to look and say, this is my voice. These are my choices. And I'm proud to put this to the world. Like, then we're starting to really think about things because those are the things we do naturally anyway. Right. Like if we can say that, you know, um, it, it's not just about attendance, but it's about really checking in. Right. And finding some of those quotes and those PowerPoints and pain points and really inviting the world into the conversations that we're having. Now there's there's a lot more stuff that's powerful. So that's that's what I'm excited about. I know I am definitely extremely excited. Just that knowing that I have a professor who has kind of that outlook is so refreshing. Um, so yeah, we will be a couple of weeks into the course by the time this airs, but I'm sure I'm having a great, I'm sure future me is having a great time. Future me better be having. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's why I said to people like, this should be your favorite course because yeah. all it's been created to curate the conversations that we want to have, right? Like, yeah. That's why I took notes on, on every single student and the notes that I took weren't, you know, they were person notes, right? They were passion notes. Yeah. They were, I want to get to know who's in this class so that we make sure that we're really getting gritty on the things that are, that matter. And can I adjust a syllabus accordingly? Absolutely. In fact, I think I should. Right. Yeah. That's why I am interested to see how much people push themselves to go from what we talked to, to what they bring as they show up today. 
yeah. right? Did you look up something different? What was your post? How far did you go? How much effort did you put? Did you check the box or did you go above and beyond? Because that's going to be what we talk about today, you know, because if you want me to tap in and get really good people to come and talk to you in the course, like I need to see what, what that's going to look like. So, you know, kind of to see what that hunger looks like. I, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so just in summary, um, before we close off, what's next for you beyond Ryerson, beyond, um, kind of this chapter of your career, what are you looking to tackle next? Um, you know, there's a lot of things. Um, I'm really, I'm really fully vested in changing these conversations and the socialization of women in sports and esports. Um, I think voice is so important. Um, and obviously it's become really clear how important that is during the pandemic. Um, so connection and voice and amplification, um, you know, um, and how we can do that through football and beyond. Um, I think content creation is going to be a big part of where I find my, my place and space in, in sports and in society right now, because there are some conversations we definitely need to have that um, maybe exist in a fictional space and not yet in the quote unquote real world yet. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to see where some of those can go. And then obviously, I mean, I work with brands like Adidas and, um, and the Hall of Fame Village um, to be able to, you know, extend these conversations. So um, it's going to be very interesting. Well, I'm definitely excited to see where it goes. Um, and I will buy whatever you put out. I will do whatever you tell me to do. Um, <laughs> so on that note, thank you so, so much again for doing this. Um, I think everyone, male or female, has a lot to learn from you. You are so very welcome. It is my pleasure.